Do you ever wonder who will be the first Native American president? That answer might already be found on the ballots across the country, where more Native Americans than ever are running for office. Welcome to the Trahant Reports election special. I'm Mark Trahant. You can find my blog at trahantreports.com or my work on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and if you have an iPhone on Apple News. Just look for Trahant Reports. So often, the stories reported about indigenous people are defined by our challenges. These are the stories that we know too well. Instead, we're going to talk about our successes. We'll explore how Native Americans are challenging the status quo by running for office and voting. It's sovereignty at the ballot box. I'd like to report this is a record year for Native Americans running for elective office. But there's a problem. No one has ever measured this before. We don't have good data. So is this a record year? Probably. Likely. And why not? Here's the plan. I've broken this story into chapters. I've posted slides that can be found on the Native Voice One website, many radio station websites, or on my blog at trahantreports.com. Feel free to take a look while you're listening. The visual story is one reason why I wanted to create chapters in this podcast. Let's start with this number. 1.7% is the Census Bureau's estimate of how many American Indians and Alaska Natives there are in this country. There are a lot of ways you can measure the population of Native Americans, but I wanted one that would be useful because it's found across many documents and that makes it easy to compare. It's also the number used by the National Congress of American Indians. So this is our baseline for our discussion. I should mention that one important factor is that the population of American Indians and Alaska Natives is growing faster than the general population, by a wide margin. In fact, a third of all Native Americans are under the age of 18, compared to about a quarter of the total population. We are a young people, and our numbers are rising. And in politics, that's everything. And it's not just American Indians and Alaska Natives who are changing the face of America. It's a much larger diversity story. When Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, the population of the United States was 80% white. Today, it's about 63% white. One demographic profile of voters by the National Journal shows how dramatically the country has changed since President Reagan's landslide. He won with the support of 56% of white voters in 1980. But in 2012, when non-white voters accounted for 28% of the electorate, Mitt Romney took 59% of white voters and lost the presidential race by four percentage points. What's striking about this election so far is that the Republican candidates did not even try to build a coalition with minority voters, young voters, or to fix the gender gap that's been a problem for decades. Millennials are now the largest age group, some 90 million people, and are more independent than previous generations. The country's diversity trend is just beginning. The U.S. Census reports that American Indians and Alaska Natives grew 1.4% since 2013, compared to about a half a percent for whites. So if we're growing, what does that mean in a political context? Well, a couple of years ago, Malia Villegas, director of the National Congress of American Indians Policy Research Center, said population parity would mean at least two U.S. senators and seven members of the House of Representatives. 
That's the goal. How far are we away from that? Well, it's really the number two, because there are only two representatives in the U.S. Congress, Tom Cole and Mark Wayne Mullen. Both are Republicans from Oklahoma. Tom Cole, a member of the Chickasaw tribe, may be the most important member in the history of Congress. When the issues involve tribes and especially sovereignty, Cole is a champion. But even more than that advocacy, Cole argues the case for tribes from within the Republican caucus, and even better, within the House leadership. He is a measured, reasoned voice not just for Indian country, but for his ideas about what a conservative party should be. And that recognizes being inclusive. Cole has a history of being the consistent, inside-the-party voice calling for more money for the Indian health system. We have a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who recognize that Indian country has been historically underfunded, he told Indian Country Today Media Network in 2012. And more important, he was the architect of building a coalition in the House to enact the Violence Against Women Act. He told WNYC Radio that the bill was a very difficult issue because there were divisions within his own conference that prevented then-Speaker John Boehner from getting to 218 votes. Yet Cole found enough Republicans and Democrats working together to pass the measure into law. Representative Mark Wayne Mullen is in his second term. He's a member of the Cherokee Nation, and he describes himself as a rancher and as a businessman. He took over his father's plumbing business and expanded it several fold. His website lists a variety of conservative causes, ranging from too much foreign aid to repealing Obamacare. Mullen does talk about tribal issues from time to time, but more often is a reliable vote for the conservative factions in the House of Representatives. He's not the kind of representative to buck his party on, say, the Violence Against Women Act. Chapter 2, The Presidency. My focus is on Native Americans who are running for office. But you cannot talk about an election without at least referencing the presidency. So, here are a few thoughts. Hillary Clinton is a story that's told in hundreds of tweets from mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts and uncles, and those who make up the larger American family. One of my favorite images from this campaign shows a young Native daughter watching Clinton walk on stage to accept the Democratic nomination. That image says so much about what's possible. When there are no ceilings, the sky's the limit, Clinton said. It's a line we all know to be true. The Limitless Sky reminded me about Wilma Mankiller. She was fond of telling a story about the first treaty negotiations between the Cherokee tribe and the United States. One of the first questions, where are your women? Mankiller said it was common for Cherokee women to be included in ceremonies and negotiations, and it was inconceivable that the United States would come to a negotiation alone. How can you negotiate anything with only half your people or half a way of thinking? Where are your women? That question has a new meaning, and it parallels that of Native Americans running for and winning offices across the country. First one person wins, then another, then another, and so on. Where are your women is a question with different answers every election. In state legislatures, Congress, and soon possibly the White House, where are your women? The answer would be running governments. When it comes to Indian country, Donald Trump is running on one issue, energy. There's probably no greater divide between Republicans and Democrats than on energy and climate issues. Donald Trump calls his energy policy America First, 
a new energy revolution. President Obama has done everything he can to get in the way of American energy, Trump said. Too many regulations make it harder to profit. But it's not just costly regulations making profits harder to come by. It's also market forces. And that's part of the story that doesn't fit neatly into a political debate. Drive across North Dakota, as I have recently done, and you will be struck by the huge man camps that were built to temporarily house oil and gas workers. Many of those camps now sit empty or near empty because the jobs have dropped as fast as the price of oil. It's now about $50 a barrel, up from its lows, but significantly less than what oil producers predicted. Trump supports the Dakota Access Pipeline, a project that news reports also say he has invested in. A political history. Remember, the entire premise of the United States political system is that tribes are governments. Tribes are political entities enshrined in the Constitution. Yet, and this is huge, tribes are the only such political entity that does not include even minimal structural representation in Congress. Even before the Constitution, the Continental Congress made it possible for residents of the territory of Ohio to have a voice. On November 11, 1794, one James White was seated in the Third Congress as a delegate. Congress hadn't even set the rules yet for what that meant. White did end up in the House, where his role was described as, quote, no more than an envoy to Congress, because he could not vote. Today, there are six delegates in Congress, representing Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. This is where Indian country gets shortchanged. The Navajo Nation, a geographic, political, constitutional entity, is far larger and has far more people than the Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, or the Northern Mariana Islands. The thing is, Congress makes up its own rules for delegates. It's not a constitutional act. But full authority or not, at least delegates are there, seated at the table. Their very presence would be a reminder about the unique political status of tribal governments. There is another interesting thread of history, and that's the Office of Vice President. It may be worth at least a footnote in the long history of tribal federal relations. Charles Curtis was Hubert Hoover's vice president and running mate. He had been the Senate Majority Leader representing Kansas. He was a member of the Ka tribe and spoke Kansa. But instead of being an American hero, he's most known for being the author of the General Allotment Act of 1887, the Curtis Act, the very vehicle used to rob Native people of some 90 million acres of land. Curtis is not alone in one respect. More American Indians have been candidates for the vice presidency than any other national office. In 2000 and 2004, Winona LaDuke, a member of Minnesota's White Earth Chippewa tribe, was on the presidential ballot as Ralph Nader's running mate for the Green Party ticket. The Greens, she said, would stand with others around this country as a catalyst for the creation of a new model of electoral politics. And before LaDuke, LaDonna Harris, a Comanche and founder of Americans for Indian Opportunity, was the vice presidential nominee of the Citizens Party in 1980. She ran with ecologist Barry Commoner in the year of Ronald Reagan's landslide win. Another historical thread, the motivation of some Native American candidates. After World War II, there was a disastrous policy called termination, the idea of ending the federal treaty relationship with tribal governments. There were two distinct reasons. Some believed it was the next logical step for Indian progress, an economic integration. 
while others hated government and used termination as a method to shrink and attack government. Utah Republican Senator Arthur Watkins was from the shrink and attack government camp. He was zealous about termination, badgering tribal witnesses when they came to Capitol Hill, refusing to even consider alternatives. He dismissed treaty obligations outright. Indians, he said, want all the benefits of the things we have. Highways, schools, hospitals, everything that civilization furnished. But they don't want to pay their share of it. This was a real threat, and Native American leaders responded by encouraging people to vote. Joseph Gary was president of the National Congress of American Indians during this era. In a period of about 30 years, more than 100 tribes were disbanded and tribal governments dissolved. The result was huge losses of land and natural resources in Oregon, Utah, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Texas. Gary saw voting as the strongest weapon in this battle. So the chairman of the Coeur d'Alene tribe ran for the Idaho House of Representatives and was elected in 1957. Later, he won a seat in the Idaho Senate. And in 1960, he sought the Democratic Party's nomination for the U.S. Senate. Idaho is a surprising birthplace for Gary's legacy. Not many Native Americans live in Idaho, where they comprise roughly 1% of the population. But Gary's successes there, even then, showed that someone from a tribal community could be a leader for all citizens of a state. And it's an active legacy. In 1975, Gary's niece, Jeannie Givens, became the first Native woman elected to the Idaho House of Representatives. Like her uncle, she challenged the status quo with a bid for Congress in 1988. Gibbons lost, but four years ago, another Coeur d'Alene tribal member, Paulette Jordan, ran for the Idaho House seat. She lost that attempt, but two years later, she won. And that illustrates what may be the most important lesson in politics. You've got to run to win, sometimes more than once. Jordan describes Given as a mentor who taught her much about politics, and both carry the legacy of Joe Gary. When a state like Idaho has a history of electing Native Americans to public office, you have to wonder, where else? It's almost been a story of success by stealth. There is a win in Arizona, another in Kansas, and when you add them up, there are at least 73 American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians serving in 19 state legislatures. Chapter 3, The People's House. It's easy to be optimistic about the prospects for American Indian and Alaska Native candidates in this election and beyond. Our numbers are growing, organizations are getting stronger, and, best of all, the most remarkable, talented people are giving elective office a shot. So then I hear a voice inside. Ah, yes, but good people lose. That's true. But at the same time, politics has a long arc that brings about change. It's not one election or one candidate. It's the constant push. Start with Trahant's rule. You gotta run to win. There is no substitute for putting your name on the ballot. This year, several talented people did just that. My former colleague at the University of Alaska Anchorage, Edgar Blatchford, ran for the Senate in Alaska. He ran with little money, promoting his candidacy largely via social media. He was the only Native American running for the U.S. Senate. There are two areas of the country where it's a question of when, not if there will be Native representation in Congress. Alaska is one, and Arizona is the second. Victoria Steele ran for the House from Southern Arizona, and in Northern Arizona, two Navajos, both Republicans, did campaign for that seat. State Senator Carlisle Begay and Sean Redd. Perhaps it's an election or two away, but one day, 
there will be Native American members of Congress who represent Arizona and Alaska. Across the nation this year, there are five Native American candidates for Congress. The two Republican incumbents plus three challengers, Denise Juno in Montana, Joe Pocotas in Washington, and Chase Ironize in North Dakota. Denise Juno is Montana's superintendent of public instruction. She's a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes and grew up in Browning, Montana in the Blackfeet Reservation. Juno has a track record. She has already won two statewide contests and knows what it takes to win a House seat. This is how U.S. politics often works. A candidate wins at the state level, does a good job, and then she moves on to Congress. Juno is running against Representative Ryan Zinke. And lately, there has been back and forth about who's been in Montana longer. Seriously? Joe Pocotas would be the first former tribal leader ever elected to Congress. He's the former chairman of the Colville Confederated Tribes and later chief executive of the tribe's enterprises. It was in that job that he revived 13 money-losing tribal enterprises. The University of Washington awarded him the Bratford Award, an honor given annually to a minority businessman for his leadership. Then in North Dakota, there's Chase Ironize. He's from Standing Rock, the center of attention for Indian country and for the planet. He's an attorney and he's running for Congress from North Dakota out of necessity. Quote, I take a look around and I see our government is broken and I feel responsible to do my part to try and fix this on behalf of North Dakota. In addition to Congress, more Native Americans than ever are running for state offices. Let's start in North Dakota, where there's a lot of news right now. The rush to build a new oil pipeline from the Bakken oil fields to Potoka, Illinois, was supposed to be routine. It was designed to avoid regulation, especially federal oversight, and get built without fanfare. The Dakota Access Pipeline issue united Indian country in a way that's unprecedented. But there's another important chapter. No state in the history of the country has ever had three Native Americans running as major party nominees for statewide offices. To put that in perspective, in recent years, Larry Echohawk, Pawnee, ran for attorney general and won, and governor of Idaho, he lost. And there have been a few other candidates. But my point is they're scattered. One candidate is a big deal. So three Native American candidates? Well, that's beyond extraordinary. Iron Eyes, as I mentioned, is running for Congress. Buffalo for the state's insurance commissioner, and Hunt Bobron is running for the Public Service Commission, the agency that would regulate pipelines. They are running on the North Dakota Democratic Nonpartisan League Party ticket. Iron Eyes travels the state's roadways pulling a cargo trailer with his campaign signs inside and on display outside. It's probably his most visible campaign advertising. On a Saturday, he made certain to park his vehicle where the University of North Dakota was playing football more eyeballs. His fundraising is authentic grassroots. He posted on Facebook recently, 16,227 people have contributed an average of $3.80 to our campaign. Send $3.80 today. $3.80. That's it. Think of what that means in a world where the wealthy write checks and buy access to politicians from both parties. Ruth Buffalo may be the hardest working candidate in the history of North Dakota. Every time you open Facebook, you see her knocking on doors, making telephone calls, or supporting the other candidates who are running. When people look at her resume, her background, she is clearly prepared for this job. As Greg Stitz, a former counsel for the North Dakota Insurance Commission, wrote in the Grand Forks Herald, Ruth Buffalo is the best candidate for the job with an academic background essentially built for the role of insurance commissioner. She holds a master's degree in public health, 
from the North Dakota State University, her depth of knowledge of the health and insurance needs for our state are unmatched by our opponents. And her accomplishments do not end there. There is not only history, but irony in Hunt Bobron's candidacy for the very agency that would regulate pipelines in North Dakota. She's from Cannonball. The Dakota Access Pipeline dispute is her community, her water. Imagine how history would be different if on a regulatory agency there was one person who could object to a routine pipeline drawing. The rules would be different, quote, because we would have a seat at the table, she said, and we would be able to help everyone understand culturally where we're coming from. There could have been a solution without controversy. This is the essence of why representation is so critical. We have so many states, counties, cities where decisions have been made without even hearing a Native voice, let alone considering what's said. That's not democracy, and it will no longer work in a country where the demographics are changing this rapidly. Yes, it's historic that three Native Americans are running for statewide office, but you know what? It's even cooler than that. This trend is just beginning. Even better, think about what history that could still be created. What if everyone in Indian country, every ally, everyone who wants change, saw the merit of voting for a candidate who's proud of contributions measured in pocket coins instead of the million-dollar access that we've come to accept as normal? Next door in South Dakota, a Lakota man is running for the state agency that regulates energy. South Dakota Democrats nominated Henry Red Cloud as the party nominee for a spot on the state's Public Utilities Commission. Red Cloud is the founder and owner of a renewable energy company based in Pine Ridge, Lakota Solar Enterprises. The company says, We believe that reducing our dependence on fossil fuels is important, and on tribal lands, it's imperative. We hope you will join us in helping tribes achieve energy sovereignty. He calls renewable energy a new way to honor old ways. This is a great story to tell during an election campaign. Voters will be introduced to a creative and innovative energy path that's creating real jobs now, employing people to build and install solar systems. Contrast this with the usual discourse about energy or even the nonsense about how climate change isn't real. Chapter 4, Shh, Secret Success. Who will be Indian country's Barack Obama? She's probably already elected to a state office. At least 73 American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians serve in 19 state legislatures. This is important. First, if you look at the body of work of these state senators and representatives, you'll find them advocating for better service, more funding, and improving relationships between tribal nations and state governments. Second, State offices are a source of talent for higher elective office, ranging from Congress to the White House. Remember, it was only 1996 when Barack Obama was elected to the Illinois State Senate. Montana best demonstrates the growing influence of Native Americans in politics. Twenty years ago, Montana was pretty much like any state with a significant Native population. There were only one or two Native Americans serving in the legislature. Then, a Native American candidate won in 1997, and again in 2003, and by 2007, Native Americans in Montana reached 10 seats in the legislature, representing 6.6% of that body. Montana's population is 7.4% Native American. Today, there are three Native Americans in the Senate, five in the House, some 5.3% of the legislature. To put the Montana percentages into national terms, 
If Congress were 5.3% Native Americans, there would be five U.S. Senators and 21 members of the House. Even if you adjust for population, the number of Native American members of Congress would have to more than double to equal the representation found in Montana. Why is Montana the model? Hard work, good candidates, and, when necessary, litigation to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And there's another reason why Native American electoral experience in Montana is different. The 2004 election of Brian Schweitzer as governor was a game-changer. Never before in Montana's history has an entire administration reached out to Indians to ensure they were acknowledged, respected, and, most importantly, included. During those eight years, more than 250 First Montanans were appointed to boards, councils, commissions, and state offices, including many firsts, such as appointments to the Fish and Wildlife Commission, Athletic Commission, Building Code Council, and health-related boards. These offices made it clear to the citizens of Montana that Native Americans were a part of the body politic. The track record of Native American legislators is also pretty good. According to Montana Budget and Policy Center, last year's session produced a number of innovative laws, including Medicaid expansion, which is a financial boost to the Indian health system, as well as laws that improve funding for tribal colleges, supporting tribal languages, and streamlining Indian business ventures. The record of Native American legislators was not 100%, but it's likely that during the next session, many of the ideas that failed to pass will be back on the agenda. Oklahoma is the state with the largest number of Native American legislators at 14. It's also the only state with a balance between Democrat and Republicans, eight Democrats and six Republicans. To put that number in perspective, nationally, of the 70 elected Native Americans in state legislatures, 58 are Democrats and 12 are Republicans. It's also worth noting that tribes in Maine have three automatic delegates to the legislature. The offices are similar to delegates to Congress from the District of Columbia and U.S. Territories. That practice began in 1823, and Maine tribal delegates can serve on committees but cannot vote. Across the country, it's clear that Native American representation before state governments significantly trails the population of American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians. For example, there are 40 members serving in the Alaska House and 20 in the state Senate, yet only five Alaska Natives represented in the House, or 12.5%, and two in the Senate. Yet Alaska has the highest voting age population of Native Americans in the country, some 17%. The growth of Native American voters and elected officials is only the beginning of a trend. We know our population is growing faster than the general population, and in many states there's already the number of voters required to build a winning coalition that includes Native communities. Most of the action in the decade ahead will be at the state level. If you look at the list of some 70 elected state officials, it's clear there's a wealth of talent such as Alaska's Sam Quito III or South Dakota's soon-to-be Senator Kevin Killer. Look across the country and you will see why the Native Americans who now serve in state legislatures are the next generation of leaders in Congress, and even the White House. So if you want to know who will be Indian Country's Barack Obama, look to the states. Her name will be Peggy, Paulette, or Winona. A final note. There are many people I want to thank for making Trahant Reports possible. Cheyenne Beatty and Nola Moses at Native Voice One. It was Cheyenne's idea for my weekly commentary. 
Nola has been listening to one mic after another, helping me improve the sound on this program. Thank you to both. I've also had financial support from the First People's Fund. A special thank you to Jackie Tiller and Rebecca Adamson. Also thanks to Paul Domain and the Native American Educational Technologies. Joanne Kaufman and Kaufman and Associates was the first sponsor of Trahent Reports. So important and so helpful. Thank you. And a special shout-out to Kara and Ken Hall, who gave me an unexpected family contribution. Thank you, and that's humbling. And thank you to the people who listen to this podcast, the weekly commentary on Native Voice One, and the many people who read my reports on my page and across social media. I'm grateful. We're about to close the books on the 2016 election, but be assured, I will keep writing about the policy choices ahead and what it means for Indian country. Until next time, this is Trahant Reports, and I'm Mark Trahant. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.